0: more details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com techsf
1: welcome to the bloomberg PL podcast i'm pim fox along with my co-host lisa abramowitz
2: each day we bring you the most important noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor Find the
1: Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Oil in Canada. It basically has one customer that's in the United States, uh, apart from those that use it in Canada. But that could change as the Canadian government backs a pipeline to move that oil to the Pacific, which could then mean exports to Asia. Here to tell us more about energy and its global implications is Paul Michael Wiebe. He is a research fellow at the Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security. Also, he's a former vice president of the Liberal Party of Canada that was under the prime ministership of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Uh, Paul Michael Wiebe, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe just outline for people that are not familiar with the dynamics of the Canadian energy markets, the role that the United States currently plays, and what could change?
3: Well, good morning. and Thank you for having me on, on the broadcast. The Canadian energy market is really a fascinating uh, sector to watch. It has had some real problems over the last uh, few years. Everyone is familiar with Keystone, uh, the Keystone pipeline, uh, which is still tied up, by the way, in the uh, Nebraska state courts. Um, we here in Canada, and right now I'm in Montreal, and in Canada there is a, an abundance of crude oil thanks to the development at the oil sands. But there is a serious bot- bottleneck in that that massive supply of crude, which is being produced, cannot get to the markets for which it was destined. So we have three pipelines Trans Mountain, which uh, is supposed to deliver gas, uh, oil to the um, Asian and U.S. markets, particularly California. Trans Mountain, Keystone, and Line 3R, Enbridge, in Minnesota. All these uh, pipelines, each of which has a capacity of around 700 to 800,000 barrels uh, of crude, are tied up for one reason or another, and they've been delayed for years um, uh, because of court challenges and opposition of one sort or another. So the Canadian energy market is going through some troubling times. And as a result, uh, the United States is picking up the slack in terms of getting crude oil exports to hungry markets overseas, particularly the Asian markets, thanks to the development of shale Uh, crude exports uh, that the United States is now uh, shipping to uh, various consumers. So in Canada, there's a real dilemma. Uh, Lots of oil, but they can't get the oil to market.
1: All right. So given that context, what do you believe the uh, tariff and trade war between the United States and Canada will do to the energy sector?
3: Nothing in the short term uh, that would affect Canadian production, uh, and nothing in the longer term, really, unless we have a total breakdown in uh, bilateral uh, energy trade between the two countries. The indirect impact of tariffs uh, is in the area of steel and aluminum, whereby the Canadian energy industry is buying uh, uh, tubular products at a... uh, A different cost structure than normally would be the case because uh, Asian steel products are flooding the Canadian market uh, since they can no longer enter the US market at levels uh, that they had been used to in terms of of um, of lower tariffs so there's an abundance of uh, supply in the Canadian steel and aluminum sector uh, which is actually providing a uh, cost differential uh, to the Canadian energy sector Uh, that is advantageous. But apart from that, there is no real uh, adverse consequence uh, in terms of tariffs impacting uh, energy trade between the two countries. Having said that, you raise a very important question. That is really the the larger issue of harmonization between two countries in terms of oil and gas supplies. And um, I'm very interested in having seen uh, senator Hoven, Senator Hovind from North Dakota, bring forward a, uh, a bill, the North American Energy Security Act, that would harmonize uh, pipeline approval uh, regulation between Canada and the U.S. And specifically in that bill, uh, the senator is calling for the um, State Department to pass on its uh, regulatory approval and permitting uh, process pass it over to FERC, and put a 90-day limit on the approval process for cross-border uh, pipelines. And I think that's very important, and I think that in the, the, uh, the direction we ought to be going, I think it would be very helpful for the Canadians as well as for American uh, uh, consumers uh, to be able to secure Canadian crude uh, in a more uh, rational and streamlined process than what we have already.
1: All right, we'll talk about that in terms of its opposite. When you talk about a rational and streamlined process, I want to shift your attention, because you are an expert in global energy resources, to what is happening in Iran and the back and forth between the United States and President Donald Trump and Iran's potential for oil exports. What are your thoughts there?
3: Well, uh, look, I think, uh, to give this context, if you don't mind, just to step back a moment to yesterday's uh, extraordinary pronouncement by the president uh, where he said on, on uh, uh, his Twitter feed that the OPEC monopoly must remember that gas prices are up and that they are doing little to help. Uh, he goes on and demands a reduction in pricing now. This uh, is historic. It's unprecedented. And what it represents, in my opinion, is a full frontal assault on the integrity and cohesion of OPEC as a price-setting organization. And what that's doing, to get to your question, is driving a wedge, a massive wedge, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Because the Saudis are complying, according to Bloomberg reports, the Saudis are complying with the president's demands. And this is quite the opposite of what the Iranians want. So when you add to the ideological and, and, and security dilemma in the Persian Gulf arising from the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and now you have OPEC being uh, rendered uh, asunder by the president, then uh, I think what we're seeing is Iran being further and further isolated, OPEC breaking apart under the hammer blows of.
1: And we've got to leave it there. Paul Michael Wiebe of Daniel Morgan Graduate School of National Security. Tomorrow, there is a deadline for tariffs and trade retaliation in the back and forth between China and the United States. And here to tell us more is Dan Moss. He is our economics editor and columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Moss underscore eco. That's E-C-O. All right, Moss underscore eco. What do you
4: believe will happen tomorrow? Well, um as you mentioned, it's been flagged that the first installment of tariffs imposed by the United States on certain Chinese imports are scheduled I'm hesitant to say go into effect because they could still fudge things to keep the lines open to Beijing, but you know, of all the ponderables in US-China economic relations, this is possibly the most flagged development. They've said they will be imposed as of tomorrow. Not the entire 50 billion, which was the figure that was bandied around a while ago, but the first installment. So as a person who likes to tweet says, we'll see what happens. Okay.
1: We'll see what happens in terms of the implementation. What do you make of the notion that many of the products that are shipped from China to the United States have no alternative, at least at a price point, that is competitive.
4: You know, the caricature PIM of China as some low-cost sweatshop sort of operation uh, is out of date. However, it is still cheapish. It's not rock-bottom cheap. It's not the sweatshop caricature. A lot of this stuff is still fairly cost competitive. And let's put it in even more cosmic terms. China is the world's largest exporter. The U.S. is the world's largest economy. Okay, these two need each other. There's obviously a lot of rhetoric uh, flying around. You know, one thing that's very curious is whenever Trump talks about China and how China is supposedly shafting the U.S., he will often preface it. Or put at the end of the tweet, you know, I have great respect for President Xi. President Xi is a friend of mine. President Xi is a world-class poker player extraordinaire. So the olive branch is always there, but look, you can make the case that these are the only two economic relationships in the world that matter. Deep down, each realizes that. So, again, I hate to say it, but you know, we'll we'll see what happens. I think a lot of the hoopla about what's supposed to be imposed tomorrow reflects the fact that, hey, it's 4th of July week. Wait, here's a countdown. Here's where China stands today. Oh, well, actually, same place it stood yesterday. So we'll see what happens. As you can tell, I'm a little bit skeptical about this. Okay. As this trade war
1: continues to grab headlines and people focus on the trade war, I also note that China has a plan, a 2025 plan, and they are pouring government resources and support into things such as artificial intelligence, automation when it comes to manufacturing. We don't seem to have a plan like that
4: the United States does not have a state directed economy. But That's we the have difference. no
1: well, we have a state directed trade policy it seems that could actually hurt the com- the very companies that we're going to rely on in order to
4: produce those future technologies. Look, China feels like it's on a roll at the moment. They feel that their time has come. They feel that the US is in relative but perhaps unstoppable decline. The glory days of China, President Xi's made this point, you know, they want to have that again. They feel they can have that again, but key to that is moving beyond the sort of low cost, Right or low-ish taking cost, a, t- t- assemb- of ass- assembly of and manufacturing base to get into and bulk up on the technologies that are going to define the economy of the 21st century. Remember, we're barely 18 years in to the 21st century. So this is arguably a struggle for dominance of the 21st century economy. You know, It doesn't really have that much to do with soybeans and genes and stuff. That's my, well, that's my point. In other words, what's going to knock China off the China twenty twenty five course? What's going to do it? Arrestive Congress in China? No, that that's not going to happen. But at the end of the day, again, these two economies need each other.
1: Maybe there's an opening for a not a trade negotiator but a trade therapist.
4: Just to get back to uh, the point from uh, you know our previous exchange. A lot of what the U.S. imports from China is stuff that has been put together at various points in global supply chains. Now, most of the global supply chains that snake around the world are anchored by, you guessed it, U.S. headquartered corporations. Right. So it's not like, okay, we're going to suddenly stop buying this stuff from China because a decent chunk of it originated with U.S. corporations.
1: Well done. Dan Moss, economics editor, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. I encourage you to follow him on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco, E-C-O.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
1: Multi touch screens, wireless charging, document scanners, wireless trackballs, and mouse. All in a package that is designed to help you ease the problems of sitting at your desk. Here to tell us more about the future of the smart office is Sagar Govil. He is the chief executive of Semtrex and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Sagar, thanks very much for being here. Maybe just outline for people what is Semtrex and how you came to really design and produce uh, what in many
2: cases is the office of the future. Thank you for having me, Pim. Pleasure to be here. Um, SEMTREX is a publicly listed technology company. Uh, we manufacture uh, electronic technology products for a variety of industries, from automotive companies like Daimler to consumer electronics companies like Harman Kardon and industrial companies like Schneider Electric. And we've been doing that now for over two decades. And we really leveraged a lot of that experience of manufacturing, electronics, and technology products from B2B and applied it now to the B2C market with our first flagship product, uh, the Smart Desk. Well, tell us about this uh, Stark uh, Gesture Systems. What is this? So, you know, one of the things that uh, we've realized or I realized is that, uh, you know, everything is getting smarter. You have a smart homes, smart cars, smart phones. But your workspace really hasn't been innovated on in the last 30 years. And so we really set out to modernize your personal workspace. And that's what we've done with this the, the smart desk. So the Stark Gesture System is a new way to control your PC or control your computer you, with touchless gestures, kind of like in uh, Minority Report or in some of the Iron Man movies like you've seen, where you m- able to move information across your screens without even touching the computer. Now, in putting this
1: all together, you've had to integrate a variety of technologies from different vendors, correct?
2: That's right, that's right. So, you know, we've leveraged our vast electronics manufacturing capabilities to incorporate the greatest technology that's out there and package it into this beautiful new form factor that hasn't been seen before so that everything is within arm's reach. And uh, we built a number of different features that really set this product apart from anything that's in the market today.
1: So what are some of those features? Because I was looking at just some of the photographs. All right, so you get three screens, multi-touch displays. You get the touchless, stylus control. Also, you get the digital phone, of course, a document scanner that's actually built into the frame of the, uh, of the computer, of the monitor, rather.
2: That's right. So we've built a number of unique features to this product, but I'll tell you about the most important ones. Um, as you mentioned, we have uh, a large, the largest display area that you can buy on the market with 72 inches of touchscreen display, which is really a fully immersive working experience. Not only that, but we built in the gesture system, as I mentioned, that allows you to control your workflow With both touch and unique touchless gestures so that we take your hands off the keyboard and mouse and into the air where you can control this computer. Uh, As you mentioned, we also include a document scanner. So you can simply put a piece of paper down onto the tabletop and we'll be able to scan the document right there. Uh, Additionally, we've also included Bluetooth voice over IP. The days of having a physical phone on your desk. Um, are long gone and there's no need for that anymore. We're replicating all of that with software, integrating with Vonage and 8x8, any other of the major voice over IP providers. And not only that, we're doing all of this vast functionality with just one wire. So most people's desks, it's an enormous amount of clutter and wires everywhere. It's a mess. And so we set out to completely revolutionize that. So you just plug in one wire for power and you're off to the races. And you can stand
1: while doing this,
2: of right? Of course, that's right. So it's a sit-stand functionality as well So to for the health benefits of that for uh, various workers. Now, what does something like this cost? So... Uh, the uh, we're starting uh, this price at $4,000, and we're also offering uh, 175 a month for 24 months. So
1: the services that come bundled with this, is that also a subscription or is that a one-time cost?
2: So all of the features are included in this product that uh, are listed there, um, whether it's the, the gesture technology or the scanning functionality and so forth. So everything you see uh, is included with that price. Okay. Now, in looking at
1: a little bit of the history of the company, I note that you've got operations in Romania. You made a purchase in the past of a company, I believe, in Germany. And I'm wondering, you are a small to mid-sized business. What would you uh, describe as being the biggest challenge that you face right now in as much as we have so much of this discussion about trade policies and trade wars between the United States and Europe?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's tough to see what's going on there. Uh, there's no question. Um, you know, we're uh, hoping that um, you know we can continue to work in the current environment. As uh, you know, we do a lot of uh, business internationally with both European clients, Asian clients, and in the United States. We're really a truly an, an international global company. And so, you know, the 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 potential tariffs would have strong implications for our business because, um, as you mentioned, we do a lot of business in Germany. It's largely an export-driven economy, and so the implications that um, you know new tariffs might have um, could be profound for our business.
1: I want to thank you very much for coming in and uh, sharing some of this information with us. Uh, uh, Sagar Govil is the uh, chief executive officer of SEMTREX. They're based in uh, Farmingdale, uh, New York on Long Island. Much appreciated. You can get healthy with a uh, a smart desk uh, setup. My co-host and colleague, Lisa Abramowitz, is on a well-deserved holiday this week, but he's not on a holiday. David Katz is the chief investment officer for Matrix Advi- Asset Advisors, and uh, he helps to manage nearly $800 million. David, thanks very much for being uh, with me today. You know, um, you, you raise an interesting idea, which is that there are a lot of things to get worried about. You could talk about interest rates, flattening yield curve, potential for slowing global economy, a fear of a U.S. recession, trade wars. But these are, I guess to paraphrase uh, former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, these are all known knowns. Are the if, if we're able to confine ourselves to these known knowns, do you think stocks generally will increase in value over the second half of this year?
5: Well, we think out of that entire list, all are very manageable, except for the possibility of a trade war. So that's our biggest concern. We think if there really were a significant escalation of tariffs and a trade war occurred, that would be a significant negative for the economy, for corporate earnings, and then for the stock market. We're hopeful that we're in the middle of a ugly public negotiation, but before all is said and done, there's some sort of sanity and some sort of a resolution. If that's the case, all of the other issues that we raised as Overhangs we think are very, very manageable, and the market should do nicely better.
1: Okay, nicely better. Let's get a little specific if we can. The energy sector is doing nicely better compared to how it performed in the first quarter.
5: Well, the energy sector is a great example that things change. It went from worst to first, between the first and the second quarter. Uh, Energy prices, although they're off today, are up very significantly. And we think that the stocks have a good deal more of catch-up. So we're looking for better things from that group in the second half of the year. We like companies like Occidental Petroleum or Royal Dutch. Uh, And our favorite right now is Schlumberger, which really has avoided the rally of the last quarter. So we think it's got a lot of catch-up here.
1: Why did you select Schlumberger? Of course, they're known in oil fields services and in the technology in order to operate uh, oil uh, industry uh, assets, but why Schlumberger now?
5: Well, it's Historically, when people have wanted into the oil sector, Schlumberger has been a leader. Uh, This last rally, they really have missed the entire rally. Part of that was that their earnings are not growing as quick as competitors, but we think that the business is about to turn in a more positive way. We're not expecting a lot from the second quarter earnings, but we think the outlook is going to be good. International activity in terms of drilling is picking up significantly. Pricing is firming, and we think this stock has a lot of catch up here, so easily could in the mid seventies to high seventies, which would really put it on par with the significant rally that's happened in the major oil companies.
1: All right, so that's Schlumberger. Turn your attention now to financials: J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo.
5: Well, the CCAR results last week were actually very good in, insofar as that they weren't bad, and they gave a lot of these companies flexibility to increase their share buybacks and increase the dividends. JP Morgan increased their dividend over 40%. Their yield is now above 3%. It sells at 11 times earnings. Great earnings outlook. Jamie Dimon, who we believe is, is probably the smartest guy in the financial sector, said uh, that we're in a golden age for financials and for banks right now, and none of that's in the stock price. So... Financials have had start and go, uh, start and stop over the last year where they've rallied. they slowed down. This last quarter, they were pretty miserable. We think they're poised for a very strong back half. We like the whole group in its entirety. We like J.P. Morgan uh, and Wells Fargo best.
1: Now, you mentioned dividends. Many investors go to utilities for dividends. Is that still something that they should follow, or have utilities changed?
5: Okay, so utilities uh, are within the dividend sector, and they're probably the most influenced by interest rates. So our interest rate outlook is that interest rates will continue to rise, and that's uh, a negative and an overhang for the utility group. So we like the dividend sector right now. We think they've lagged in the first six months of the year. The one area we don't like are utilities. Outside of utilities, we think there are lots of opportunities. So healthcare's got a lot of higher-yielding stocks. We think the telecom companies, at and and Verizon, are at Very attractive prices, regardless of whether interest rates go up. Uh, There are a lot of industrials that are paying three, three and a half percent yields like an Eaton Corp. Uh, We think those are going to be great places to make money. So we think the market is going to swing back to dividend stocks in the back half of the year. But the one exception to that is going to be utilities.
1: Tell us about Eaton Corp. Based in Cleveland, stocks down about four percent so far this year, pays a three and a half percent dividend.
5: So the stock's down 4%, but the business is doing exceptionally well. Uh, We've owned it for a number of years and have done very well. Uh, But one of the things uh, that we've seen is that the management is the most upbeat they've been in quite some time. Earnings are rising significantly. They've got a really good cash flow, yet the stock hasn't done anything. Uh, They've raised the dividend nicely. So this is a case where we easily could see the stock up 10 or 15% in the back half of the year, and that would just be catching up with a better market. Uh, We think it's one of the lower-risk ways to invest in the market now insofar as that it's at a very low valuation and a good yield, but a very good outlook.
1: Another stock that's down about 4% so far this year has a much uh, smaller uh, dividend of about one and a quarter percent is cbs why cbs in
5: the portfolio okay great question so on um, the uh Media industry has seen a lot of interest in Fox between Disney and Comcast trying to buy it, and we think that highlights the value of these assets. CBS has been a miserable performer in the last year, but the business is great. Their earnings are growing very, very nicely. Um, their ad, their advertising spending is going up very nicely. So the fundamentals are great. The valuation is great. Uh, the Fox buyout highlights the value in entertainment assets, and we think something better is going to happen to CBS this year. Uh, either they'll resolve, their conflict with the redstone family Uh, there's a possibility the redstone family might ultimately put it up for sale if they do we think the stock is easily worth 40 percent more but even in of its own fundamentals we think the stock should sell at 13 or 14 times earnings and it's at about 10 times earnings so uh we like the group for the back half of the year we like comcast too we like viacom too but CBS is our favorite
1: all right i'm only going to give you about 20 seconds david but i gotta ask technology what are you doing there
5: So we think technology is going to be fine in the back half of the year. It's not going to be as lopsided to the upside as the first half of the year. And our focus would be on some of the tech companies that are doing well, but stocks have lagged. So Cisco and Qualcomm are our favorite. And we'd be a little bit wary of the ultimately hot stocks like a netflix or an amazon which have been on fire we think they're going to be less good places for the, for investors to make money
1: thank you very much david katz chief investment officer matrix asset advisors helping to manage nearly 800 million dollars of customer assets based in new york